Hello, and welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. I'm your moderator, Rachel Deere with DKB Med. Thank you so much for joining us. You'll notice several windows on the, on the console, and we encourage you to move those to your liking and minimize what you don't need. There's a group chat available to communicate with other viewers if you're interested. And you're also able to submit questions for the faculty by clicking the Q&A button towards the bottom of your console. Questions will be addressed during our Q&A session at the end of the presentation. At the conclusion of the presentation, you'll be able to access the evaluation and a test for credit by clicking the Claim Credit button. Your thoughts and comments are important and will help us develop CME activities on this and similar topics in the future. We're pleased to welcome two expert faculty members, Dr. Shmuel Shoham, Associate Director of Transplant and Oncology Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and Willa Cochran, Infectious Disease Nurse Practitioner at the Johns Hopkins Johns Hopkins Hospital Comprehensive Transplant Center. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. These are the faculty disclosures. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Eli Lilly and Company. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. Here are learning objectives for the activity. Evaluate management strategies for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19 and explain mechanisms of action and role for monoclonal antibodies and other current and in-development treatments for COVID-19. All right, we've got a few knowledge questions to kick off our webinar. If you don't see the submit button, please scroll down as it is sometimes cut off on smaller screens. So let's start with our first pretest question. Monoclonal antibody pro products are authorized to treat which group of patients with confirmed COVID-19? One, any patient. Two, any non-hospitalized patient 18 years of age or older three non-hospitalized patients 12 years of age or older at high risk for severe disease, or patients hospitalized for COVID-19 12 years of age or older requiring oxygen support. Please answer now, we'll give you a moment. Okay, and we'll move on to our next question and we'll, we'll revisit these questions at the end of the presentation. Next question. A 32-year-old patient with type 2 diabetes and a BMI of 37 has mild COVID-19 with onset of symptoms four days ago. Is this patient eligible for monoclonal antibodies? One yes or two no. Okay, we've got another question. Monoclonal antibodies that are currently authorized for COVID-19 work by one, blocking the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to attach to and enter human cells, two, inhibiting the ability of, of SARS-CoV-2 to replicate, three, inhibiting pro-inflammatory cytokines, four, inducing atopsosis of SARS-CoV-2, five, triggering destruction of SARS-CoV-2 cell membrane. Give you a moment to answer that one. 
Okay, thank you again. And we'll revisit these questions at the end of the presentation. Be sure to, uh, to enter your questions in the Q&A box. And right now I'll turn the presentation over to our faculty. Thanks again. Great, thanks. This is Shmuel Shoham, and I'm sure that most of you got most of the answers correct, but definitely by the time this presentation is over, you're going to be able to crush the post-test. So we'll start with a case. This is slightly adapted, but from a real patient that I've been involved in. A 35-year-old woman with obesity, BMI of greater than 50. She developed a cough, sore throat, and fever of two days duration. In fact, the whole family developed something like this and they all went to a local pharmacy and they all got tested and they all ended up having COVID. The family got better but she kind of rumbled along with a cough that persisted and then about a week into her symptoms things really began falling apart and she developed severe respiratory distress. They took her to the emergency room. In the emergency room she got worse, required intubation, mechanical ventilation to the ICU and there stayed in the ICU for a prolonged period of time with multiple complications, multiple system organ failure, kidney failure, nosocomial pneumonias, multiple rounds of antibiotics, lung failure to the point where she would require ECMO, that's uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, but because of her size, she couldn't have that done and she ultimately passed away. And the question that continues to haunt me is, could this death have been prevented? And this slide shows kind of what happened with this family in that the vast, vast majority of people that have COVID are gonna do just fine. They're gonna have mild symptoms, maybe even up to mild pneumonia, but they're gonna get over it. There is this syndrome that we're talking about more and more that we're trying to get a handle on as to long COVID people that remain with symptoms afterwards. But even that's a minority of patients, a large minority, but a minority of patients, the vast majority of people with COVID are gonna get better. But the vast majority does not equal everybody. And the reason we get so exercised about this infection is the next group, the 15 to 20% of people that are going to develop severe disease and of those that are going to get critical disease. And severe disease is going to be one that's bad enough to put you in the hospital, shortness of breath, hypoxemia, or a chest x-ray with extensive involvement on the x-ray. The reason that we are so focused on trying to prevent the infection in the first place, but then if uh, we can't prevent it, then trying to prevent the patient from requiring hospitalization is because if somebody is sick enough to require hospitalization, then a substantial minority of them can go on to have critical illness, ICU, respiratory failure, shock, multi-system organ failure, and then a high mortality in the ICU. All those reasons together make keeping people out of the hospital a very worthy goal, both in terms of preventing complications that can happen in the hospital, preventing death, and preventing utilization of healthcare resources. And I have never been in the intensive care unit, but I've talked to a lot of people that have been. And even if somebody has a brief stay in the intensive care unit, the scars that are left from that can be significant in terms of both physical scars and emotional scars. So definitely worth preventing that. Which brings us to what is it that we can do to prevent? Can we go beyond the mask, if you will? So yes, we know all about the mask and we know all about hand hygiene and we know all about the six feet, but if things break through and the person gets an infection, what do we do? Do we sit around and say, okay, well, let's wait and see what happens or do we become more proactive or can we figure out the specific groups where that would be effective? So one approach is passive immunotherapy. 
So you have active immunotherapy where somebody gets a shot in the arm or somewhere else in the body and their immune system then develops a response to it and then that is useful to prevent infection. But passive immunotherapy is sort of like an instant vaccine. And the idea of using passive immunotherapy or passive immunization goes back over 100 years, and it predated the antibiotic era. And Emil von Behring, who ultimately won the first Nobel Prize in medicine, worked on this in the 1890s. And what he did was take horses and other animals that had been injected with diphtheria, the bacteria that causes the human illness, diphtheria. And then he extracted their blood, and then from their blood, the serum, the aspirin, of blood that has antibodies in it and then used that serum as passive immunization against diphtheria. And again, he went on to win the Nobel Prize, the first Nobel Prize in medicine actually went to him for that. And that kind of approach had been abandoned for years as a main type of treatment because small molecules, antibiotics became available and it was much cleaner than this sort of messy approach of taking antibodies from an animal and having allergic reactions to the animal antibodies. But it didn't die out completely, and we still use passive immunotherapy for a variety of conditions, both uh, hyperimmune globulin. If somebody has a case of an exposure to rabies, for example, then they get the rabies hyperimmune globulin and the vaccine as a way of protecting them. We also use for hepatitis B and other conditions. But laboratory-based antibodies were also developed, and they arose from uh, ability to take antibody-producing cells and immortalize them. First, it started with myeloma cells, and then the technology advanced. And I think we're all familiar with MABs, various MABs, and they're very successful in terms of fighting a variety of immunological diseases, whether it's uh, Humira or other drugs or neoplastic disease. A lot of the new chemotherapeutic agents are monoclonal antibodies. But the use in infectious disease had sort of lagged a little bit. And at, at this point, 2019, for example, anthrax, the toxin against anthrax, there was a monoclonal for that, hopefully we don't see very much anthrax. RSV, there's a monoclonal for that, respiratory syncytial virus uh, for little babies, and Clostridium difficile for the toxin for that. Also, monoclonal antibodies were developed for other conditions, Ebola being the most famous of those in development. But it was sort of still in its infancy up until COVID came around, at which point the options for treatment were to repurpose existing medications like remdesivir, that's an antiviral that was developed for something else that was repurposed, repurposed existing medications that haven't panned out like chloroquine, ivermectin, or develop sort of de novo medications. And it's amazing that in something like a year, several different companies were able to produce from nothing, essentially, monoclonal antibodies that are active against SARS coronavirus. So that by November of 2020, there was already the first product, bamlivimab, which I'll talk about in a second. And then two months later, another couple products and they were available. So development, extremely rapid and not in a COVID environment, they were granted emergency youth authorization, which is different than FDA approval. So typically before I give a talk, I'll say I'll talk about approved and non-approved medications. None of the things I'm talking about are approved. They're authorized under emergency use, which is sort of a very short leash approval that is done in cases of national and international emergencies. How do they work? Normal infection, this is not with the treatment. The SARS-CoV viruses bind to the ACE receptors in human cells, and they do that so that they can fuse with and then enter the cells. 
And the way they do that is through these spikes. You've all seen the photos of the virus, and it looks like a ball with all kinds of uh, spikes coming out of it. And those spikes have a part that's called the receptor binding domain or the receptor binding area of the spike, the, and it's called RBD. And that binds to the ACE receptor in humans. So you got the virus, and you got the human cell, and you got the spike, and then the part the RBD binds to the human cell. What do monoclonal antibodies do? They interfere with that binding, so they decorate the spike unit, particularly the receptor binding part of the spike unit, the spike protein, so that it can't interact with the ACE2 receptor. If that interaction doesn't happen, the virus can't fuse with the cell, can't get into the cell, and you have prevented the infection. However, the protein may mutate so that monoclonal antibody might not recognize it, and we'll get into that soon. So the point is that you need to have the right drug at the right time with the right patient. So uh, going back to that original slide, the vast majority of patients are going to get better regardless of what you do. So you want to choose your patients correctly because you don't want to treat everybody because some, uh, most people are going to do fine. I would say the 23-year-old healthy female triathlete with COVID, she's probably going to do just fine. Maybe, you know, once in a long blue moon, you'll have somebody that, that's, that is not going to do fine. But for the vast majority, she's going to do fine. The 80-year-old man with chronic lymphocytic leukemia and heart disease and frailty, that guy is going to have a lot higher risks. So you want to pick the right patients for treatment so that you're not using a lot of treatment on low-risk people. And then you want to get the right timing. So the body's natural host defenses will make antibody if you give it long enough. However, there's a little bit of a race in uh, a lot of people between getting the virus to not do too much damage and to not activate the immune system too much so that the person starts going down the pathway of becoming very sick and requiring hospitalization and worse. So you want to get this monoclonal antibody or passive immunotherapy early on. And, and that's sort of intuitive. Like if somebody has an exposure to rabies, for example, you don't say, well, you know, why don't you come back in a month and a half and we'll give you some hyperimmune globulin. No, you want to get it early, early, early where you have the best chance of making a difference. And then the third issue is that respiratory viruses are, are, are sloppy. They're constantly mutating. It's not like a C. difficile toxin that is, or a TNF alpha molecule that's always going to be the same. They're constantly mutating. So variants are emerging in the community, and that means that monoclonals that are effective in one region may not be effective in others depending on uh, if mutations occur. And then the last problem is escape mutants, and that's a problem in immunocompromised patients. And if you have a very high viral load in somebody and their immune system is not coming to the rescue to help the monoclonal and the antibody, then you can have mutations developing as a consequence of therapy. So that's another issue to be aware of. It hasn't really played out all that much yet, but it's an issue. So let's dive into the first drug, bamlanivimab, or BAM, and that's the first drug that attained authorization. And again, it's a tour de force of November 2020. It was first, it says approved, but it's actually authorized by the FDA. That's huge to go from that to already having a treatment that is authorized by a very conservative agency, the FDA. They don't just throw out authorizations left and right. So the reason it was authorized was based on an interim analysis of single treatment. It was a multi-arm trial. In that trial they did, they looked at bamlanivimab at 700 milligrams 
at 7,000 milligrams, 2,400 milligrams combinations, so multiple different arms, placebo. But this interim analysis was enough to uh, really drive FDA to allow this authorization. What they showed was that the viral load at day 11 didn't really change. You weren't Whether you had placebo or whether you had bamlanivimab at 7,000 milligrams or at 700 milligrams, didn't really matter all that much. The viral load improved in everybody. However, in terms of need for hospitalization or even for an ED visit for COVID, not an ED visit because you twisted your ankle, but an ED visit for COVID, if the patient was uh, just anybody in the study, 6.3% of patients required an ED visit or hospitalization if they got the placebo. However, if they got the drug, that went down to 1.6. And maybe that 23-year-old female triathlete, she was going to be in this group regardless, but that 65 and above year old guy or somebody with a high BMI, the people that we know have a higher risk for infection, if you give them placebo, 10% ended up in the hospital, but you can knock that down to 3% with the drug. So very encouraging early results led to authorization. However, there was always concern, and that concern has played out, that a single drug monoclonal antibody going after one part of the spike protein, that the virus can mutate away from that and that there could be a resistance that develops. That resistance probably did not develop because people got bamlanivimab. That resistance developed in the community because the monoclonal antibody was based on a human response, a, a human immune response. So it wasn't like we created this monster by giving bamlanivimab, but nonetheless, mutations have occurred and in fact, at this point, the FDA is advising that we use combinations as opposed to bamlanivimab alone. So what's some combinations? And here's one combination, bamlanivimab plus etesivimab. Now, these two drugs are somewhat similar in that they go after similar places in the spike protein. Not exactly, but similar. And the study looking at 577 patients all outpatients, hospitalization or emergency department visits in that group, 5.8% placebo, less than 1%, 0.9% in those that got the combination. And then in the high-risk people, 13.5 to essentially none requiring hospitalization or ED visits. So very promising, and therefore it received an EUA and when people are getting monoclonal antibodies, they're either getting this combination now or the next combination, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Bigger study, this was the that was a phase two. They move moving on to the phase three study. Similar type of outcomes, 7% versus 2.1%. And now these patients are all high-risk patients. These are patients that were all at risk for developing bad outcomes. Uh, results here sort of, again, stress the efficacy of it. Now, the dose in the study, there were all kinds of different doses that were used because this was a dose-ranging study initially, but they found that it didn't matter what dose was used from the different doses that they that were used. They all seemed to be effective, whether in this study or in similar studies. So based on pharmacokinetic data and other data, 700 milligrams and 1,400 milligrams has been approved, although in this particular study, they used a higher dose. But there didn't seem to be a reason to need to use the higher dose in real life. So the approved combination is 700 over 1,400 for the two drugs. 
And then finally, moving on to this combination, which is the Regeneron product. The FDA also had an emergency use authorization for that one based on about 800 patients. And that one for hospital or emergency department visits in high-risk patients from 9% down to 3%. Again, you can kind of see that 10% is the number that you get. And then for all patients, this isn't hospitalization. This includes hospitalization, but mostly things associated with needing care for COVID also went down significantly. And then newer data, again, showing the similar type of results, significant reduction in risks with the monoclonal antibodies. So the bottom line is, if you use the monoclonal antibodies, particularly these combinations, you can keep people out of the hospital. However, we have an evolving national situation with resistance developing. These slides show the different variants that are happening by states, and the bottom line is that we're getting more and more variants occurring at different states, particularly the South African variant, which has reduced activity for BAM and BAM-ST, but the Regeneron product still works as it does for the Brazilian product. And this is sort of a slide putting all of the different variants together. We're still seeing variants are still in minority, but they're becoming increasingly prevalent. And this New York variant is becoming more noticeable. So again, we're having resistance issues. So putting it all together, what to consider with monoclonal antibodies? It's an antiviral. You got to use it early. You got to connect diagnostic testing with getting people into therapy. Don't use them in hospitalized patients too late. And these are the recommendations from the various major guidelines, NIH and IDSA, basically saying use the combination if you're going to use. They didn't have sufficient data to talk about BAM alone, which we're not using alone anymore. Who to give it to? People at high risk for complications. You don't want to give it to, again, the 23-year-old, otherwise healthy person. You do want to give it to people at high risk for complications. You want to give it early and you want to give it in places where if somebody gets into trouble with a rare allergic reaction, they can respond. Willa, I'm handing the baton to you. Thank you. So as Dr. Schoen just described, we have data to support the use of monoclonal antibodies in patients with mild to moderate COVID disease. Um, I would like to touch uh, base a little bit on the logistics of actually facilitating that, uh, the screening, the referral, and um, the follow-up. Um, for monoclonal antibody therapy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive back into case number one, who is Ms. P, and uh, we asked, could her death have been prevented? So I'll start with, uh, uh, this is just a review of the case. She was the, um, sorry, this is a different case. She was the young woman with obesity who tested with her family at a local pharmacy and was diagnosed with COVID pretty early on in the disease process. Um, she uh, indeed, as we now know, qualified for antibody based on her BMI and her other, some other comorbidities. Um, one of the barriers that we've identified in our patient population is the, um, the location of the test and or the location of primary care. Um, and had Ms. P had a relationship with a primary care provider, she may have uh, been able to have been referred for antibody within uh, a timely fashion, and it may have prevented progression of the disease and uh, potentially prevented her death. Uh, I'd like to touch on uh, another case. This is a patient of mine, um, Mr. A, who's a 57-year-old African-American man. He has end-stage renal disease, hypertension, 
and he had a deceased donor kidney transplant in 2017. So he is taking um, immunosuppressant therapy. Um, he was exposed to his wife with COVID-19. He and his wife both had cough and body aches. And on day five of symptom symptoms, he tested positive uh, for COVID-19. And this was at his primary care clinic. He then called his nurse coordinator at the transplant center. And uh, I'm gonna walk through a bit of our process uh, here at our center on how we uh, refer folks. So first step, does Mr. A meet criteria for referral? Um, he is at high risk for severe COVID disease. He has multiple um, risk factors, including uh, history of chronic kidney disease. He's on immunosuppressants. He is over 55 and has hypertension. Um, and um, he is in fact within the 10 days of onset of symptoms for COVID. So on day five, uh, the, his nurse coordinator deemed him appropriate for referral for antibody. Um, discussed his case with me. I was in agreement and we sent a referral to uh, the infusion center. Now, some centers nationally are able to provide monoclonal antibody cocktail infusions on site. Um, we have seven infusion centers statewide and currently our program refers to those centers. Uh, it's a well-oiled machine. There was no reason to reinvent the wheel um, in such a fast moving pandemic. And we've had great success referring directly to them. On day six, his temperature at home was 99.5, cough had improved. This is after antibody infusion. Um, excuse me, the day before antibody infusion. And then uh, within two days after infusion, he was afebrile, cough somewhat in, uh, improved, and his pulse ox was 98%. Um, at our center, we've made it a priority to have every member of the care team work to the height of their, li their license, um, especially during the pandemic. Um, so. Uh, we have had the nurses and nurse practitioners drive this initiative um, since the EUA was released. So the nurses screen the patients who have known COVID. They consult with a provider, um, can be a physician, can be a nurse practitioner. Um, licensure differs state by state. Um, but for the majority of states in the United States, nurse practitioners are able to um, make these referrals um, without uh, any physician oversight. We submit an online referral form, and then we monitor the clinical course after the infusion. So we refer to the infusion center, the team uh, there determines final eligibility, and then they screen the patient at the time of arrival at the infusion center to determine if, if they are best suited to get antibody or if they should rather be referred to an emergency room. Um, and then after the infusion, we continue to monitor symptoms and ensure that the disease course um, does not progress to a point where they still may, may need emergency room and or admission. Um, the advanced practice role is that uh, I oversee all the outpatient COVID cases, and then I assist the nurses in referring for monoclonals. Um, I also, uh, I'm also the point person if somebody is, um, too ill to be referred for monoclonals, where in fact that they are too far along in the disease process for it to be beneficial, um, regardless of uh, time course. Um, I staff outpatient COVID clinics, and so I can also follow these patients by telemedicine before and after uh, infusion. And then I liaise between the inpatient and outpatient teams, um, the primary teams who care for these patients.
Um, I touched a little bit on uh, some barriers to uh, referral. Um, in fact, our greatest barriers have been getting the referral within the 10-day the timeframe. And in fact, when we transitioned to a nurse-driven model, um, that was much improved. Um, and then the other barrier is if somebody, uh, if their symptoms are too far along in the clinical course to warrant antibody. So for example, if, they're, um, if they have a pulse ox reading of less than 94, I believe, um, is the cutoff, um, or if they are, uh, if they have shortness of breath or any clinical findings, but all of those findings have been determined by the infusion center clinicians um, after we've referred. And so far we, we have had probably 90% of the patients we referred have had um, infusion. I, I'll hand it back to Dr. Shoham. If, if you have any barriers that you've faced um, and in the interest of time, we also would like to move on to post-test questions, which we, um, we both can address together. So we all saw these questions beforehand. So we'll see how you do post. Monoclonal antibody products are authorized to treat which group of patients with confirmed COVID-19? Any patient, two, any non-hospitalized patient 18 years or older, three, non-hospitalized patients 12 years of age or older at high risk for severe disease, or patients hospitalized for COVID-19 12 years of age or older requiring oxygen support. Okay, and we will show you how you did previously. Okay, it looks like in the pretest, the majority of you said choice three non-hospitalized patients 12 years of age and older at high risk for severe disease. And for the post, 89.5% of you said uh, non-hospitalized patients 12 years of age or older. Dr. Shoham, do you want to um, explain the, the correct answer? Non-hospitalized patients, that's when you're going to get the most bang for the buck in terms of efficacy. Hospitalized patients, if they're hospitalized for COVID, then actually the regulatory bodies and the data do not want you to treat those unless it's part of a clinical trial. There have been several clinical trials that actually had to be halted because they weren't working, and there might have even been a suggestion that people had even a worse outcome in certain groups in hospitalized patients when they received the monoclonal. So we're not doing that. Now, if they're in the hospital because they broke their hip, nothing to do with COVID, and as a screening test, we're found in the hospital to have COVID. And then when you go and ask them, you're like, yeah, actually, I'm having some symptoms of COVID, but I'm not in the hospital for COVID because I'm not that sick. That would be a fine person to give them a monoclonal. But if they're hospitalized for COVID, you don't want to do it. And then the any non-hospitalized patient, again, that's probably too broad. You're going to be giving people treatment that they don't need probably not going to harm them, except, you know, anything you put in your body can have harm and there are side effects, but uh, with a somewhat precious commodity and people time and, and everything associated with that, I don't think that I would like any non-hospitalized patient, 18 year older, to get it. I really want to focus on the people that are higher risk for severe disease. Okay, great. Thank you for that explanation. We'll go to our next post-test question. A 32-year-old patient with type 2 diabetes and a BMI of 37 has mild COVID-19 with onset of symptoms four days ago. Is this patient eligible for monoclonal antibodies? One yes or two no? 
Okay, and here's how you did in the pretest. The majority of you said yes, 81.5%. And in the post-test, 100% said yes. Willa, did you want to explain this one? I could, but we got a perfect score. So yes, the type <laughs> 2 diabetes and the BMI of 37 and being within 10 days of onset of symptoms are all um, within the criteria for referral. Great. Wonderful job. Everyone will go to our third question. Monoclonal antibodies that are currently authorized for COVID-19 work by one, blocking the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to attach to and enter human cells, two, inhibiting the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to replicate, three, inhibiting pro-inflammatory cytokines, four, inducing a apoptosis of SARS-CoV-2, or five, triggering destruction of SARS-CoV-2 cell membrane. That was kind of a long one. We'll give you a moment. Okay, and here's how you did in a pretest. Majority of you said uh, number one, blocking the ability of SARS-CoV-2 to attach to and enter human cells, about 53%. And the post-test, 87.5% said the same thing. Dr. Shoham, do you want to explain this one? Sure. So I think that we maybe didn't ask the question precisely enough because we should have probably said predominantly work by, in which case blocking the ability of SARS to attach to human cells. That's the main mechanism. Now, if they don't attach and they don't get in, then they're not going to replicate. So I think that the people that chose this one are also correct, although not the main mechanism, but sort of a, a second order event that happened. All right, so we'll move on to the Q&A portion. Um, as a reminder to submit a question, and we've been receiving those throughout, so thank you everyone. Click the Q&A button on the bottom of your console. So we'll try to get to as many as time allows. So our first question, and I'll, I'll ask it to Willa, what is defined as early? What time range once diagnosed with COVID will high risk history and severe symptoms? Yeah, so to clarify, if a person has severe symptoms and a diagnosis of COVID, monoclonal antibody is not appropriate at this time. If the symptoms are severe, meaning they have a oxygen requirement or a high fever or shortness of breath, um, the, uh, essentially the, the COVID horse has left the barn. It's, it's, that's, that's not the time for an antibody. If the patient has high risk for severe COVID disease and they are within 10 days of the onset of symptoms, regardless of the date of the COVID test, they can be referred for antibody. So if they got a COVID test for work on Monday and they didn't feel sick till Thursday, they have until 10 days from Thursday to be referred for antibody. Okay, great. And I have another question. How do the new variants affect choice of monoclonal antibodies? That's, that's a good question. Dr. Shoham, did you want to answer that one? Sure. I'm going to throw some names out, and they're going to be geographical names, but they are by no means blaming the countries. Actually, it's the countries that identified these variants for the first, and that's how the name came. So you have the UK origin, the South African origin, the Brazilian, California, and New York variants. And for all of those, if you have the UK origin or classic COVID, if you will, bamlanivimab should work. However, if you have the uh, South African, Brazilian, Californian, or New York origin, bamlanivimab is going to have a significant reduction in activity 
and the combination of BAM plus etisivimab is going to have reduction, but not as severe as the other ones. And then the Regeneron product, the Kessirivimab, Imidivimab, that seems to work for all of those variants at this point. So if you are in a place where it's mostly classic COVID or UK origin COVID, then Either one of the combinations is going to work. However, if you're in a place that is having increasing South African, Brazilian, California, or New York, then the Regeneron product seems to be more effective in vitro. Okay, Dr. Shoham, another question for you. Can you briefly discuss the use of MAB for prevention of disease in high-risk patients, example, household exposure? Sure. So we know that about 10% of people will have household exposure. So if somebody is infected in the house, about 10% of the uh, household members will have an exposure. So if it's a person at high risk for having a bad outcome, perhaps there could be a role for preventative therapy. And in fact, there are some studies in uh, nursing homes that have looked at that uh, to prevent exposure. It seems to work. You'll have to look at the number needed to treat to see if it's worth the effort and worth the potential for risk with a monoclonal antibody. But I think that this is an emerging area that will be important, particularly for high-risk people living in the same home. So if you have a kid, comes back from college, has an infection, and in the home lives his grandfather who has leukemia, that might be a use uh, situation. Not yet authorized for this, but I think that that is something that may come down the pike. Okay. And a question for Willa. When should the vaccine be given after treatment with antibodies? The CDC currently recommends 90 days, and that's based on um, an estimate of the half-life of monoclonals, but also on the likelihood of someone developing uh, COVID-19 within 90 days of having uh, received the monoclonal infusion. So at this point, the recommendation remains 90 days. And then Dr. Shoham, I, I saw another uh, question in the chat about um, if someone who has, re the, the opposite, if someone has received vaccine, subsequently develops COVID-19, uh, are they eligible for monoclonal antibody infusion? Uh, so they are eligible for monoclonal antibodies, and I would say that there's probably uh, two reasons for that. One is they've proven that their own immune system is not enough to protect them, and if they are having symptoms and are in a high-risk group, then there is potential benefit. And then there's emerging data from certain immunocompromised populations like transplant patients and others that they may not have had a response to the vaccine. Yeah, they got the vaccine, but maybe they didn't respond to it, and now they're exposed. We're hoping that even people that haven't had a response to the vaccine still have enough protection so they don't get severe disease. But since we have these products and they are authorized, and so for a high-risk person with infection, I would still try to get them in as soon as I can into getting them monoclonal. Okay. Dr. Shoham, our last question, is someone who received monoclonal antibodies considered immune or are they treated the same as someone who received the vaccine? One of the things that was discovered over 100 years ago with Van Bering and his experiments is that the immunity that one gets with passive immunotherapy is brief. It lasts only as long as the antibodies last in the body. And the antibodies from the monoclonal seem to last in the body for a while so that at a month, there's still a, a, a good amount of drug in most people. But over time, it will wane and they will no longer be protected. So the antibody does seem to go away. Now, that having been said, 
putting aside the people that got the uh, monoclonal antibody as a prophylaxis for people that got it for treatment of infection, early infection, they're going to also have the own immune response that they develop the antibodies. So they're going to be protected for a period of time because they got the infection and they got over it. And the monoclonal antibodies are probably not going to be enough to prevent them from getting good antibody response. So the CDC feels that they're probably protected for about 90 days or maybe even longer. So for that reason, we, we say that if you got the infection and you got the monoclonal antibodies, then there's no rush for you to get the vaccine in the next 90 days. However, probably the combination of the infection plus the monoclonal antibody for a short period of time, then the vaccine is going to give you much longer protection. Okay, great. And thank you so much for answering those questions, Dr. Shoham and Willa. And thank you so much to our audience for for asking those right questions. Um, I just want to reiterate, if you'd like to claim credit, please click the claim credit button that will appear after the webcast ends and you should see it as well now. Um, as a reminder, please be on the lookout for our 30-day survey. You'll receive that via email. And as always, your responses help us develop further education on this topic and similar topics. So we thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Shoham and Willa, thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you.